Father, we've uh, had two weeks without study in Luke. And Father, I pray that as we come back into it, your Holy Spirit would be active in our minds and in our hearts, bringing to mind where we've been and drawing us, Father, back into the events in that gospel. But Father, as we do enter into it again, we want to be mindful that without the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us, there is nothing in this book that would make sense to anybody in this room, that the power to understand your word, to understand it truly, to be able to recognize its power in our lives, to let it change us. All of those things, Father, depend on the power of your Holy Spirit, not on my my words, not on my ability to teach, not on our own abilities to reason out the meaning of the words. Father, you have determined that it is by your Spirit alone that the truth would be revealed so that you might receive the glory for it. And in this morning, as we enter again into the Word, I do pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be active, that He would be in the hearts and minds of those gathered and those listening, and that wherever they are, whether here or elsewhere, You would bring to mind the truth that You have ready and waiting in Your Word. Let it mold us, Father. Let it change us. Let it never be merely an exercise in knowledge. And then, Father... As the teaching concludes today, I pray as we go out even, we would be thinking even now about how we could take what we've learned and put it to use for you, Father, in the kingdom, to your glory. Let all these things be pleasing to you, Father. And I pray they are in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. You remember we finished chapter 6 two weeks ago when I was last here. And... Chapter 7, as is characteristically the case with Luke, is another fairly long chapter. Luke's gospel, more than any of the others, tends to put a lot of material into one chapter, or the men who actually divided up the scriptures purposely chose to do that. So, as is the case with 6, we will take a number of weeks to get through chapter 7. We took five weeks in chapter 6. I don't expect to be quite so long in chapter 7, but I think three or four is probably likely. At the conclusion, then, of Luke chapter 6, Jesus, if you remember, had just finished his sermon, the sermon we commonly call Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to get a picture again in your mind of what was going on in that moment and and how it moves now into the next series of moments depicted in chapter 7. You remember that though the sermon was addressed to a crowd, a crowd of people gathered at Jesus' feet, there was specifically an audience in mind as he taught, and it was specifically the disciples. We said last time that the disciples are really in this crash course in righteousness. That you and I tend to look back on the disciples and imagine they were always the way we hear of them as they write the uh, the epistles or as they go through the book of Acts and do ministry. We imagine they were always these pillars of righteousness and these pillars of understanding of Scripture. But we forget they were just like you and I at the beginning of our walk in faith that they themselves had a lot of misconceptions, a lot of baggage, things, stuff, bad thoughts, bad teaching, bad assumptions that they brought into ministry. And it required the work of the Holy Spirit, in this case, and Christ himself, in this case, teaching on truth, on what is righteousness, in order for all those errors to be corrected. And during the course of this training, Jesus has taught on, among other things, forgiveness and judgment, and on the need to discern true believers and true teachers from false teachers. And there's more to come. And each of these lessons turned on its head some teaching that was common to that day. 
common not only to that day, but also to the methodology of the scribes and the Pharisees that were largely the teachers in that day. So it wasn't simply a matter of telling them something new. Jesus was in both was at the same time trying to teach something new while trying to turn something they already knew on its head and show how it was wrong. So Jesus is not only preparing his disciples here with the truth, he's also countering false teaching. But I, I want you to see something new now as we move into chapter 7. If Jesus had been satisfied merely with explaining the truth concerning righteousness, it's possible that the disciples may never have been able to carry out their commission to bring the good news, to bring the gospel to the world. Had he stayed simply with teaching righteousness, I think it's fair to say the disciples would have failed in their ministry. And that's because in addition to correcting their views on righteousness, Jesus still had to correct another major misconception held by not just the disciples, but frankly by all Jews in that day. And this new area of confusion, this new area of misteaching was so strongly held, it was so deeply ingrained in the Jewish culture that it could only be addressed by example. In other words, it wasn't going to be enough that Jesus simply teach against this misconception. He actually had to go out and live it out and demonstrate how the misconception was wrong. Mere teaching alone would not correct it. In fact, I'd say some of these disciples were so reluctant to let go of this past issue I'm going to talk about and embrace what Jesus was demonstrating that, as we'll see later today, even Peter himself, even Peter himself, mighty Peter, is going to continue to struggle with this issue even years after Jesus is crucified. That's how strongly ingrained this is. So what is this new teaching I'm talking about? What is it that we should be mindful of as we watch Jesus in chapter 7? Well, it was this. It was that God was about to set aside for a time the special distinction of being Jew. And in its place would emerge a new gathering of believers, both Jew and Gentile. And even more than that, even more radically than that, the disciples were going to have to accept that with this change would come the end of the law for all who believe. I don't think we can fully appreciate sitting here today just how radical those two thoughts were to a Jew. And that's what Jesus has to teach in addition to teaching on righteousness. And he begins to break down that wall here today in chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Let's pause there just for a moment. Jesus ends his discourse, we've said, on the Sermon on the Mount. And then he returns to Capernaum. This is another one, as we've seen before, this is a town in the area of Galilee. It's interesting to me that Jesus moves back and forth in this relatively small area of Galilee during the early periods of his ministry. It's worth remembering that earlier Luke recorded how Jesus was able to perform miracles in Capernaum, if you remember, quite, quite easily due to the faith and, and the response of the people that he found there. But then in Nazareth, his own hometown, he wasn't able to perform miracles because of the lack of faith. In that town. And so this is at least the third time we've seen now Jesus going back into Capernaum in just the first six, seven chapters of Luke. You know, if you were to look at this casually, at first glance, it would seem like Jesus has no plan. It would appear as though he's just wandering aimlessly from spot to spot. He teaches a little here, he moves on, and then next thing you know, he turns around, he goes back to where he was again, teaches there again. 
It was if he were running his ministry with absolutely no idea what he's going to do next. In fact, if he were doing this today, I'm pretty convinced that he'd probably be given all kinds of advice from well-meaning people on how to run his ministry more effectively. Wouldn't you think? People would take him aside and they'd say, you know, you really need a five-year plan, Jesus. You really need to kind of chart out what you're going to do. And you need to have goals and you need to have ways to measure your goals. And you need to kind of, you know, watch your progress and adjust your plan. I mean, that's how you get effective in ministry. This wandering back and forth, this is getting you nowhere. You know, it it looks like you're aimlessly wandering. It doesn't even look like you know what you're doing. Now, I'm not being entirely fair here because there are advantages, of course, to being well-organized. My wife reminds me of that constantly, and she's right. You know, there are good reasons to be deliberate in your approach in ministry. But, But here's the question. When does your planning, when does my planning in ministry replace reliance on the Holy Spirit for day-to-day direction. Where's that line? When when does it become about me and my plan and not God and His plan? That's the danger. What if He directed you to go somewhere other than where your five-year plan was taking you? Would you be prepared to dispense with your five-year plan in the middle of it and move on to what the Holy Spirit is actually directing you to do? I would argue that once you get ingrained into something you set forth and say, this is my plan, it's that much harder to be responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I know it is in my life. In Jesus' ministry, we see a perfect embodiment of following the Spirit in ministry. And consider what it looks like. Consider now what following the Spirit actually looks like according to our worldly standards. We look at what Jesus is doing in this gospel so far and we say, he's wandering. He has no vision. He has no plan. He seems to have no idea what he's going to do next. You know, I think that may actually be true. I think he probably didn't have a direction in any specific sense, except as God the Father directed him through the Holy Spirit, day to day perhaps. And I would tell you that I think following God's direction won't look like the way the world thinks it should look. It will make us look at times like we don't have a plan. It will give a sense at times of disorganization. By the way, I think even though Everything Jesus did during his earthly ministry was according to the Father's will and according to the Father's purpose. That doesn't mean we're going to discount the sheer practicality of what he's doing. In other words, it's not without sense. It just looks like it is. Consider this. He went where his ministry was most effective. We've already said Capernaum was a place where Jesus' ministry bore great fruit. Nazareth wasn't. So it would only make sense that when he wants to go back to a crowd and teach, he would go to the place where his ministry was bearing fruit. It's, sheer, it's just sheer practicality on Jesus' part. And we should do the same thing. Effective ministry is going to depend, as it did for him, for us as well, entirely on the Father and on what he does through his Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. So if we're truly depending on the Holy Spirit in ministry, if we're truly yielding to him, watching for his work, then we're going to go wherever we are bearing fruit. We're going to use the opportunities he gives us in that way. So here's Jesus going back into Capernaum because as he has left the mount, he wants to do more teaching. He's going to where he thinks he'll find receptive audience. And he goes into this town. And as we heard, this group of elders, Jewish elders, meets him at some point in this town. Uh, the, the Gospel of Mark actually tells us that Jesus arrived just in time to go to the synagogue and teach the, the worship service. So at some point after that, they approach him and they tell him about this Roman uh, soldier, a centurion, who has a slave who needs healing. I want you to understand, this is a bold request on the part of the centurion. For this man to make the effort to seek out a Jewish rabbi 
was a very bold effort. In fact, I would tell you he had very little reason to think it was going to work. He would have been assuming that the rabbi was going to reject this request. Let's talk a minute about what a centurion is. A centurion is essentially a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. And in typical terms, he would command roughly 100 men, a small contingent, relatively speaking, or modest-sized contingent. In the Roman army, men like him would enlist, like you might see today, and serve 25 years. And if they made it through the army for 25 years, they would receive Roman citizenship. Remember, if you were a Roman citizen, you never served in the army. Roman citizenship was a level of honor in the culture. You might be an officer in the army, but you would never be an enlisted man in the Roman army if you were not if you were already a citizen. So for them, it was a way to buy citizenship. And once you had Roman citizenship, it could be inherited. That's how Paul became a Roman citizen. He inherited that citizenship. And the men who were working their way towards citizenship, these were hard men, typically. They had a hard life. They got low wages. There was a lot at stake. They were working very hard for something that was very precious. And so the Roman army took advantage of that and made the most of their service. And within their area of control, whatever area they were assigned, they could wield significant power and authority on a small scale, granted, but they could be a big fish in a small pond, wherever they were. So it wasn't uncommon for a man in this kind of a position, for a centurion, to use his authority to extort the local population. Because remember, he's not making much money, and he's living in a pretty hard set of circumstances, away from home, so it wouldn't be uncommon for him to take bribes or kickbacks or other means of augmenting his wages. And so he would not be a very popular guy among the Jewish culture where he was stationed. In fact, for a Jewish rabbi, uh, looking at this man, uh, an occupying Roman soldier, a Gentile, which is even worse, uh, a man who is oppressing his own people, stealing from them, in other words, the last thing a rabbi wants to turn around and do is help a man like that under most circumstances. But of course, Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. And as it appears from the text, this man is no ordinary soldier either. He is well respected, as the elders testify. He's helped the Jews in his region. In fact, helping Jews was politically smart. I mean, it kept them under control. It kept them from being riotous. So there was something good in it just from that standpoint. But I think in this case, it's also a clear sign of this man's faith in the Jewish God. In fact, they say he loves the Jewish nation. Now, we're told that this centurion has a slave, and he cares greatly for the slave. But I want you to look at some of the language here as well. In verse 7, which we'll get to in a little while, when you look at verse 7, he says slave, but really it's the same word used later in Scripture for son. So we're actually looking at someone who has a great endearing love. In fact, the word for slave in some cases in this text is bondservant. Same word that Paul uses to describe himself, Peter uses to describe himself. And so here's what I think happened. I think the elders, appreciating what the centurion had done for the Jewish population, heard of Jesus and his healing ministry. And at some point went to the centurion, who was obviously suffering over the, the sickness of his slave, of his loved slave, and said, you know, I think I know somebody who could help your slave. And the centurion would have said, well, bring him here if you can, please. And they said, well, he's a rabbi. And the centurion said, well, can you go and make an appeal for me? Can you go and convince this man to come and heal my slave? And again, I think the centurion would have had low confidence that that was actually going to take place. In fact, he uses the elders to seek after Jesus in part due to humility. You'll see that later in the verses we'll read here in a minute. 
But I think that humility comes from a distinction of him not being a Jew. In other words, his respect for the Jewish people and their culture meant he knew how much they would have disliked a Gentile and how radical it would have been for a rabbi to step into the home of a Gentile. That would have been breaking every moray of the culture. And so I think his humility was done in part, was in part a res, uh, response to the fact that he knew how this rabbi was likely to treat this request. Now, as you study this account, I want you to remember the disciples again here for a moment, because that's really the point of what Jesus is doing. Yes, he's helping a centurion. Yes, he's helping the centurion slave. But that's not the end. That's the means to the end. The end is in how he's preparing his disciples. I want you to consider what they would have thought as Jesus heard this request from these elders. They They would have heard what was asked, and they would have thought exactly what every other Jew in that day would have thought. Don't think of the disciples here as high and mighty yet. They're early. They're just like the people they were before they met Jesus, practically. And at this point, they probably would have had a hard time appreciating why Jesus was going to accept this request. It would not have made much sense. I want to give you just a moment here to understand what a first century Jewish thought would have been about Jew versus Gentile. How they would have thought about the distinction in fact, I think it's, it's going to be difficult for you to fully appreciate this because I don't think you really can unless you've grown up in the culture. I don't think I can. A Jew believed that by God's promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis, he had set apart the Jewish people forever. And the descendants of Isaac, this Jewish nation now, was the only nation who would ever receive God's blessing. If you were not Jew, you would never be blessed by God. You were forever condemned. And that all non-Jews, we call them Gentiles, all non-Jews or Gentiles were condemned simply by virtue of not having been born a Jew. They didn't see it as changeable. They didn't see it as something that was going to be only temporary. They saw that as God's eternal plan. That's how it had been interpreted by their teachers. Now, this is a false understanding of Scripture. And though we don't have time this morning to explore all the reasons why this view is wrong according to Scripture, we should at least understand, I think, some of the problems this view creates for the Jews. Now, you're a Jew for just a moment. You have this view that says only Jewish people are going to be blessed and saved by God. The Gentile world is lost. With that view in mind, here's some of the problems you're going to encounter. First, you see the rest of the world as scum. You see every non-Jew, every Gentile, as completely unworthy of of your compassion. or In fact, they're unworthy of even your fellowship. You never step foot in their home. You never talk to them. You don't want to touch them. In fact, you act like they're not there. So you imagine how hard it is to be ruled by them as the Jewish nation is now being ruled by the Romans. In fact, consider how the elders try to convince Jesus to come see the centurion slave. Look at what they say. When they approach Jesus, they make uh, appeals on the basis of how good the man is to the Jewish nation. In other words, they're trying to prove to Jesus he's actually worthy of Jesus' attention, of his healing. Because they know instinctively a rabbi looks at every Gentile as worth less. Not worth his time. So that's the first problem you have as a Jew. You're the only one who counts. Second problem of a Jew. You have a sense of entitlement. You have a sense of entitlement with regard to eternal matters. A Jew, remember, is saved in their mind simply because they're born a Jew. So they got it coming to them. They're owed it. And there's a hint of this earlier, as we read in the Gospel of Luke earlier, if you remember when we taught on John the Baptist at the riverside. What did John the Baptist say when he looked at the Pharisees who came down to the river? He said this in Luke 3, verse 8. He says, 
Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He's addressing this specific error. This error in thought that says, because I'm a Jew, I'm saved by the fact that I'm a Jew. I have it coming to me because Abraham is my father. It's false thinking. In Matthew's account of the centurion that we're reading about here, when Matthew covers this same account, he records these additional words of Jesus uh, after Jesus sees the centurion demonstrate faith. This is what Jesus says. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is saying in response to seeing a Gentile show so much faith is that in the end, when we actually see who's in heaven and who's not, we're going to find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be sure. But all the sons of the kingdom, and in this context he means the kingdom of the Israel nation, the Jewish nation, all the sons of these people of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob line, many if not most will be cast out, he says. And others will be sitting around that table. His point being that just as this centurion is showing so much faith, it's proof again that in the end, many Jews who think they will be there will not. Because they never showed faith, they thought of their eternal security simply as an entitlement of birth. And here's the final mistake you're going to make. If you're a Jew and you're thinking like these Jews would have been thinking in the first century, you're going to have this final complicating factor, which is going to make it even harder for you to understand the truth. The Jew understood the law that had been given to them through Moses as the recipe for salvation, as the means to being righteous, is the way to get into heaven. So they worked tirelessly trying to keep this law in order to make themselves righteous. They had rules. They did the rules. They would be righteous before God. That was their view. Remember, it's not just the Jewish leaders who thought this way. It's all Jews, by and large, thought this way. They were saved because they're Jew. They're righteous because they keep the law. All Gentiles are lost and unworthy of any hope. And here's this centurion's request. And what Jesus is going to do for the sake of the disciples is use this opportunity to break down those three misconceptions. Now, in the course of this chapter, we're going to get through one of them today in the course of discussing the slave. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to work through the rest of the chapter and you'll see how he breaks down the whole picture before the chapter is over. And he doesn't just stop, of course, at this point. This is merely the beginning. So Jesus starts off for the house, agreeing to come see the slave. But before he gets there, the centurion sent friends to meet Jesus on the way. And that's where we are now at verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my slave, Do this. And he does this. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So the centurion says he's not worthy for Jesus to come into his own home. That he knew Jesus could heal the slave from where he stood right now. 
without even having to come near the man, without having to actually see him. Before Jesus can respond, though, I think it's kind of, for me, a little humorous. Before Jesus can respond to that request, to that statement, the centurion, I think, seems to feel compelled to explain his thinking. You know, he says, you can heal him right now. And let me tell you why I know that's true. And he goes into this discussion about authority. He says that he knows Jesus can heal the slave simply by his word. And he says he himself, he's a man under authority, so he understands it. In fact, he has men under his authority. And therefore, he understands better than most how real authority works. Real authority can accomplish something merely with a word, with a command. And everything that is under that authority will respond to that word. If you have had authority, then you know what I'm talking about. In fact, I think most people in this room would understand this. Parents, for example. When kids are real little, when your children are are real small, how do you measure whether they respect your authority or not? By whether they obey your word. The first time. Right? In fact, how do you know when your authority over your children is waning as they grow older and they reach adulthood? How do you begin to tell when that authority is starting to slip away? When they no longer heed your words. When your words cease being commands and start being advice. Right? We understand that. I'm a former military officer. And I can tell you from my own experience that in times of conflict, the leader's authority and his ability to get things done has to be unquestioned. The people under him have to obey his word without hesitation or lives are potentially at risk in combat. In fact, if you remember even in the beginning, in the creation story itself, God creates the universe and all that's in it by the power of his word. Merely By his word. So real authority and respect for that authority is not demonstrated by might. This is something I think our culture today has completely lost sight of. When you have to enforce your will through might, it's a sign that you don't have authority over something. It's most clearly seen when mere words result in the desired outcome. That's when you know you have authority. When your word gets what you want done. So what does it mean that this centurion told Jesus to simply give his word and he knew the slave would be healed. What what conclusion do you draw from that? Well, it simply means he believed in the power of Jesus' word. He believed that Jesus' word had control over the health of that slave. It was the word of God, in other words. You notice he begins his statement in humility. He says, I'm unworthy of you coming into my home. I'm even unworthy to come meet you. And I would argue that's a sign that he's already experiencing the repentance brought about by the Holy Spirit in his heart. A repentance of his own unworthiness before true authority. And then he says, he demonstrated what kind of authority Jesus had, that he had authority over the body of men by saying, if you simply give your word, my slave will be healed. He then demonstrates his belief in the power of Jesus to have that ability. And what does that mean he thinks Jesus is? Who does he think Jesus is then? Who can have authority, by their word, over our body, except the one who created it? You can have authority over your own body by taking medicine or as a doctor helping somebody else, but that's not by your word. Only the creator would have power over the body by the word. So in two steps, he's confessed his own unworthiness before true authority and declared what that authority was. In a word, this man had faith, as Jesus credits him with. Faith that Jesus had the authority over creation and could exercise that authority with just his word. 
Do you remember what we defined faith to be out of Genesis when we studied that book so long ago? Uh, we started looking, I believe, at the description of faith in Hebrews 11.1, a famous verse. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is trust in something that's completely without tangible proof. Before there's any proof, consider what Paul says in Romans 8.24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Paul reminds us that if we have faith in something that can be seen, it's not faith at all. It's merely self-evident. I have faith that there's a chair there. No, I don't. I can see it. So it's self-evident. It doesn't need my faith to be proven. It is there. But something that is not seen, something that is future, that's faith. In fact, you could add this to the definition of faith. Faith begins before proof arrives. It is always future-looking, future expectation. So what would you say about this centurion's view of Jesus? Well, we ultimately came to the definition that faith is believing in God's promises, taking Him at His word, and then living our life in such a way that we reflect that belief. That we live outwardly in some way that reflects what we truly hold on to as a faith internally. That our life reflects our thinking. So if we look at the way the centurion is living, Jesus said it himself. He said, no one in Israel has shown as much faith as this man. What Jesus, I believe, is remarking on here is not so much his statements, but on his actions. What Jesus is remarking on here is this man's faith is so great, not because he's saying it better than the next guy, not because he's got a more convincing testimony than the next guy, because he's doing things in his life that are so radical, they're clearly based in his faith. I mean, if he really wants the slave healed and he's got the doctor walking to the house, who in their right mind would stop the doctor halfway to the house except the one who believed he had the power to heal without actually being there? His life reflected his belief. And that's the surest proof of faith in a man's heart. And there's such a true lesson in this for us as well. Let's face it. When it comes to our faith, our words are pretty cheap. And I don't just mean you. I don't just mean me. I mean the world. Faith, in general, is easy to state. Words are cheap. People can say they believe in a lot of things. And usually, if you listen closely, what people say they believe in are the things that they see or the things they control. Favorite phrase of mine, I believe in myself. That's not belief. That's not faith. That, that's simply a recognition of what you have capability to do, whatever that may be. We can all say we believe in the gospel. We can all say we believe in Christ's words about you know, how we live and how to treat one another. We can all agree with the sensibility of what's said in the Gospels. But do we actually live like we believe it? That's the test of whether our faith is real. There's a term, I've read this term a lot lately, there's a term that's been coined by the people who study trends in society and in religion. The term is nominal Christian. The word nominal, it comes from a Latin root. Nomen, nomen, means name. So when you put the two together, nominal Christian, it means a Christian in name only. A Christian in name only. Now, the term was coined in recent decades because the researchers who were out polling people about their thoughts on various matters, when they came up to someone and they said, are you a Christian? They found this incredibly high number of people say, yes, I'm a Christian. Over 90% in the American culture will say that they're Christian. And they've concluded that far more people are willing to say they're Christian 
than are probably truly Christian in the true sense of the word. And so they said, how do I account for these people in my data, on my surveys? Well, I'm going to create a new group and I'm going to call them nominal Christians. People who are Christian in name only. So today we have Christians and nominal Christians. And a few who actually were willing to admit they're unbelievers. But how do you know the difference? Where do you draw the line? Well, by how they live their lives. You know, I'm sure we can all imagine what it must look like to be a nominal Christian, right? They never go to church. They never tithe to anyone. They don't pray. They don't study their Bible. They make no effort to conform their lives to Jesus' teachings whatsoever. I mean, sort of obvious things. Those would be the easy ways to find the obvious nominal Christian. And I would acknowledge that there are probably some who fit the definition or fit the pattern of a nominal Christian, but in fact are believers. They're just completely in rebellion. I certainly leave open that possibility that there are people like that, certainly. But consider this. These nominal Christians, these men on the street corner, these women on the street corner that are being polled by these people and saying in response to, what are you? I'm a Christian. Those people, they think they're Christian. They don't, they're not saying to themselves, I need to fool this guy. I'm going to tell him I'm a Christian when I'm really not. No, they think they're Christian. They're as sure about themselves as you are about yourself right now. So, just to be sure that we're not one of these nominal Christians and don't know it, maybe we ought to be willing to subject ourselves to the same test that Jesus is applying here to this centurion. Are you living a life that reflects the faith you claim? Am I, for that matter? Do we trust in Jesus' word or do we demand proof at every turn? Yes, Jesus, I'll do what you tell me to do, but could you give me a sign? I love that term. It sounds spiritual, but really what you're asking for is proof before faith. And yes, God entertains that sometimes. The story of Gideon and the fleece is probably the best example out of Scripture. But the fact that he entertains it on occasion under very specific circumstances, if you study that account, does not make it the rule, does not make it the norm. Can can God give you his word, for example, through Scripture, not a burning bush, Not some holy man who comes to your front door one day and gives it to you in some mystical way. Simply out of the word that's sitting on your lap one day. Can God give you the word that you need on that way about some aspect of your life, something you're asking him for help on? And is that enough for you to respond? That's really a test, if you ask me. When you read it on the page, you know it's been there for centuries, but today it comes and roosts in your heart. Is that enough for you to act? Or do you need something bigger and better than that? Another way to test yourself, are you bothered when your life doesn't fall into line with God's Word? When you see something in your life that's not consistent with what God tells you in His Word, does it bother you or or do we make excuses for why our life needs to be the way it is? You know, these are hard tests. And, And I think if we're truthful about our own lives as we read Scripture, we'll all admit we fail it somewhere. I fail it somewhere. Everyone I know has failed it somewhere. We don't live the perfect life that Scripture would ask we are not made believers by our behavior. And we are not losing our salvation by our behavior. But there's a big difference between being a perfect Christian and a nominal Christian. Most of us fall somewhere in between. The question is, which side of the line are we on? Because if we're a Christian in name only, we are an unbeliever, and we have no hope of eternal salvation, we will find out on the day of our death that we are one of those people Christ looks at and says, 
Away from me, I did not know you. The surest way I can think of to make sure we're not on that side of the line is to find it within our hearts to conform ourselves to God's teaching, to seek after it, to be sure of our calling on the basis of how we feel in light of what we read in the Word. Not that we're earning our salvation, but we're testing ourselves. Does our faith really mean what we say it means? But now again, what are the disciples at this point? What do you think they're thinking at this point? I have to tell you, I think Jesus has rocked their world as a Jew, telling them that this man, this Gentile Roman soldier, has more faith than all of Israel. You couldn't have insulted a Jew with any stronger terms than that. He not only consented to visit the Gentile in the first place and then heal his slave, now he's commending the man as a pillar of faith, the example for all of Israel. I don't think we can begin to imagine the dumbfounded look that would have been on the disciples' face at that moment when they heard those words. The gospel, if you remember, is going to be preached to all the nations, not just to the Jews. And God's going to do it through these men. And if they're unwilling to go before Gentiles and preach to them because they've already written them off as lost, then God's plan of preaching to all the nations isn't going to take place. And I've said before, this is a difficult concept for the disciples to grasp. I want to give you just a taste of how tough this is going to be as we end here for the day. It's so difficult, in fact, that in Acts chapter 10, which we don't go to today, but I just want to give you a summary. There's an account there of the Apostle Peter, early in the life of the church. He receives a dream. I'm sure many of you have read this story. And in the dream, Peter is commanded by God. The result of this dream is he's commanded by God to kill and then eat this whole assortment of unclean animals. Animals that under the Jewish law would not have been allowed to be eaten because they were considered unclean under the law. And Peter, in his dream, sees all these unclean animals. Here's God say, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, I have never eaten anything unclean, God. So far be it for me to violate your law now. God says three times in a row, Rise, kill, and eat. Peter eventually understands that God's making clear through this dream that you do not regard what God has made clean as being unclean. Do not regard what God has made clean, unclean. In other words, you finally have authority now to preach to the Gentiles. There is no law. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no clean and unclean. Christ paid that penalty. Everything now is clean by His blood. In Acts 11, later, the next chapter, Peter testifies before the other leaders in Jerusalem that Gentiles have been receiving the gospel message. Peter tells them, the leaders assembled there, I have been preaching and believers have been coming out of the Gentile ranks. They are believing the Word of God. And some of the church leaders, when they hear this from Peter, still can't accept it. They can't accept that God would actually save Gentiles. And so Peter recounts his dream to that group, tells them what God has told him in that dream. And he says that if God intends to bring faith to the Gentiles, who is he to stand in the way? That's the way he summed it up. And then the crowd reacts this way. Chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God and said, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The only conclusion they could draw was, obviously God is working in the hearts of Gentiles as he has with the Jews. You see, Peter was there in this chapter, chapter 6, and in this chapter, Luke 7. He was there on the mount with Jesus. He heard the Beatitudes speech. He heard the whole teaching on righteousness. He heard everything we studied in chapter 6. 
And now again, here he is in chapter 7. And he's hearing and watching the story of unfold of the centurion being saved at the hands of Jesus. He's seen all of this, and yet later in Acts, he still can't bring himself to go to the Gentiles until God gives him that dream. Do you see how entrenched this is? Do you see how hard it is for him to let go of his Jewish past and actually preach to the Gentiles? Next week, we're going to watch Jesus tackle an even more difficult issue for the, for the disciples, and that's this fading nature of the Jewish law. Next week, when we see him raise a man from dead, you're going to watch how it actually contends with the issue of the law. If Jesus can break these rules, well, I wonder what rules we hold on to now. What things we say are essential in order for us to be pleasing to God. And I question at times, or I would ask you to question at times, just how many of those rules are truly the ones God has given and how many of them are our own. And then secondly, how often do we apply those to other people and expect them to live up to our rules first? Jesus is in the middle of trying to dispense with rules and replace them with love, with a heart that knows God and wants to please Him. I hope the Word is doing the same for those here today, for myself as well, that we would see what God is doing in the lives of the disciples as no different than what He's doing for us today in the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank You so much for this time again. May this Sunday, Father, and all the days that follow be an opportunity for us to demonstrate obedience. May our lives reflect our faith. May our faith grow by study of the Word and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And likewise, Father, may our behaviors, may our lives continue to grow as well, be, to be molded according to Your Son's image, to be a true reflection of You and all that You're doing in us. And may, Father, as Your will allows May we come back next week. May there be even more to come with us, to hear the message, to be changed as well. Let our light, Father, be a way to attract others. We thank you for this time and this place and for the many who've gathered in your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.